this is Nicole with Fresno Madeira Medical Society coming to you to talk about advanced care planning on Central Valley Physicians Podcast. Today we have John McLean, who's a second year fellow in the pulmonary and critical care program at UCSF Fresno. Welcome, John. Thanks for having me on. Thank you um, for coming today. And so this is a subject that I, I always feel like I know enough about, but I probably should know a lot more, but so I'm glad you brought the the topic to us. Um, So what exactly is advanced care planning? So advanced care planning is a pretty important topic because it really applies to everyone. And it's, it's really just thinking ahead for times when you are not able to speak for yourself. So, you know, right now, if we're listening to the podcast, we're probably feeling okay without any particular illnesses, but Anything can happen at any time. And in my particular field of medicine, bad things happen really fast to people, oftentimes requiring very substantial life support measures, and they're not able to make their own decisions for themselves. So advanced care planning is talking with your family, your friends, your loved ones, your physicians, and figuring out or making decisions beforehand what you would want done and particularly what you wouldn't want done for yourself in terms of pretty substantial treatments that we have in the ICU. Okay, so let, let's put this in a perspective, in two perspectives, because I think that, one, you should be planning, like you're saying, for yourself, but then also, two, you know, for example, both of my parents are in their 70s, and this is probably definitely a conversation I haven't had from them. Who should, who should be planning, you say everybody, but at really at what point should you start your advanced care plan? It, it really should start when we start to develop sort of the signs of the inevitable. And what I'm saying with the inevitable is just the, you know, I'll I'll break the ice and say uh, what people often don't talk about. We are all going to get sick and we're all going to die. And the the best time to really start thinking about these things is when you develop, you know, chronic and significant illness. Things like dementia, heart failure, COPD, uh, early stages of cancer. When when you really have the wherewithal and the and the ability uh, and to to talk about these complicated and difficult things. Okay, now who should who should you start that conversation with? As okay, so for instance, if I wanted to bring up that conversation with with my parents, should it be me or should I be encouraging them to discuss it with their physician, their lawyer? I mean, I guess where do you start? Yeah, it's kind of all of the above. A, a, a great place and probably the easiest place to start is with the the, the individual's primary care doctor. And, and a great place, a great way to do this is. For you to go with your family members or your, if, you know, your family members to go with you to the primary care doctor and, and make a clinic visit specifically for this purpose with the specific goal to talk about advanced care planning and talk about uh, end-of-life care, things like that. And, and the primary care doctor is a great resource to, to start the conversation. So um, what if... You know, I, I, I look to my parents, which both of them are very healthy for the most part, but are those questions that we should be bringing up in, in conversation with them so they're thinking about doing it um you know I, I i let's put it in all honesty i think my mom's probably on top of it my dad probably not so much because i just think that that's not something that's on their mind they know that they're aging they're they know that they're you know they don't have any chronic issues but at the same time you know they're in their 70s and i get something could come up unexpectedly absolutely and, and you know the the difficult fact is it will at some point and and it may be a slow increase of a of a expected illness, and it may be sudden something sudden and, and severe. 
uh, and it really falls on all of us to talk about it. So if it's something that, that your parents bring up or your family brings up, great. If not, it, it's something that, you know, you should try to bring up yourself and it can be very difficult. Mm-hmm. So what are some of the specifics that we should be asking them? So really the, the, the things, there's a, there's a huge number. Obviously, there's all kinds of treatments and all kinds of uh, scenarios that may happen in any particular illness. Kind of the easiest place to start is if, if you know, someone were to get so sick that they end up not able to make decisions for themselves. Kind of the, the most basic and simple things are the things like the, that we refer to as a do not resuscitate order where... If you if your heart were to stop beating, what you would like done or not done, and and some people are very uh, very clear of I want absolutely everything done, and we'll talk a little bit about what that means, or I want absolutely nothing done. But a, a do not resuscitate order specifically means if your heart stops beating, what will happen by default is a whole team of people run into your room and they'll they'll press on your chest to squeeze your heart manually to pump blood around. They'll try to shock your heart if it's in the right rhythm to try to kind of restart it. They'll put a tube down your throat to put you on a breathing machine, and they'll use a bunch of medications to, to try to jumpstart your heart. Now, in, in certain people, this is great stuff. In, in the right population, this, this treatment works really well, uh, such as kind of the right population are, you know, kind of kids it works really well in, people with respiratory arrest where they, you know, things like drownings and, and things like that. But there's a huge population where it doesn't work well at all. People with very severe infections, sepsis, people with very advanced cancers, people with very severe heart failure, where the survival rate is quite slim. Uh, and, and much like chemotherapy and much like there's a lot of severe treatments, CPR is also a very severe treatment. One promise I make to every one of my patients is if I do CPR on you, I will break every one of your ribs because it works better. Now, the consequences, if it does work, you also have the severe pain and the, the consequences that come with broken ribs, too. So it's, it's not a benign treatment, and that's why it's very important to talk about. Okay, well, you just scared me. I didn't realize that it was Sorry that. that. that no, I mean, <laughs> I understand. I, I just didn't realize it was that um, embraceive, I guess, or abrasive, I should say. Um, so the do not resuscitate Typically, you're talking to an older parent that that potentially could have something or does have a chronic disease. What about somebody, you know, for instance, my age, which which I'm young, by the way, (laughs) which is younger. I mean, you know, you say if it's an emergent reason, they're always going to do the CPR because there's an emergency that it had happened. But, you know, what if I'm just one of those believers that doesn't um, doesn't think that any with the exception of CPR, any um, long-lasting um, life support should be taken. You know, I'm okay with doing my own yeah. um, advanced directive, and I could do that with my doctor as well. Absolutely, and and much with every treatment therapy we have in medicine, there's there's a, a you know a time and a place when we think based on numbers, statistics that. Uh, a particular patient will have a particular benefit from a treatment, and and younger people, I think it's great, and even. Older people, certainly people across the spectrum have a place for not having a DNR and having a full code uh, order. But as advanced illness and as critical illness gets worse and more complicated, that's when the conversations need to come in of, of maybe it's time to, to not pursue these very, adva- or very aggressive 
very complicated and uh, treatments that have very many adverse effects. Too. Okay. So, so when you are discussing this with your doctor, is he going to ask very specific questions or obviously he's going to train you on the difference like you just did with do not resuscitate, which, um, which inclu- and the opposite of resuscitate. Are there different questions that come into play as far as, okay, well, Yes, I want CPR, but I don't want something helping me breathe. Or I mean, I guess does it doesn't right. get that specific. Yes, it, it does. And kind of the, the most basic place to start is something we, we call a pulsed form, P-O-L-S-T, which stands for Physician Order for Life-Sustaining Treatment. This is something that you have to fill out with your physician. Uh, they have to actually sign it. And what it is is a bright, usually pink piece of paper that you're supposed to fill out. It's on really heavy, hardy paper that's going to last a long time, and you should stick it up in an obvious place. And what this piece of paper literally is is a series of checkboxes for certain scenarios that eventually may happen to everybody. And it's specifically for the most severe illnesses, such as if your heart stops beating, what you would want done. If you're not able to breathe on your own, what would you want done? If you're not able to eat on your own, and basically how aggressive care you want of, of really full treatment, do everything, Minimal treatment of do things like antibiotics, do things like, you know, some medications to treat certain diseases, or really the, the kind of least invasive is, is, you know, it's not do nothing. It's really do things that focus on comfort only, pain medications, nausea medications, anxiety medications, uh, but really don't do the aggressive, painful, difficult things uh, that would prolong your life, but not necessarily make your life better. Okay. And there, you know, we could whole, have a whole different conversation on on those medications, and you know, even to the, the home health hospice piece of it. But we'll have that next time for sure. So, what happens if um, somebody goes into the hospital? They've signed this pulse form with their physician. How does the hospital know about it? That's the important part of having it in an obvious place. One thing that that paramedics and EMS personnel are trained to do is when they go into somebody's house, they look around and they see, is there a pulsed form somewhere? And and in somewhere like a skilled nursing facility or rehab facility, this goes along with your chart and goes along with you to the hospital. So if you arrive at the hospital and, and you're not able to speak for yourself because of a severe critical illness, the the form should arrive with you. And the physicians in the emergency room will see that form and will be able to know at a very basic level what your wishes are and what you would want done. And they'd be able to, to pull back. And if you would say, I never under any circumstances would want to be on a breathing machine. That's a nice example because it's very uncomfortable, very invasive, on uh, a very severe treatment. Then they, they, if, if you were not able to breathe enough on your own, they'd be able to say, oh, this person even though they're not breathing enough on their own, never wanted to be on a breathing machine, even if it meant that they were to die. Mm-hmm. We need to focus more on keeping this person comfortable and respecting their wishes as opposed to doing everything under the sun to try to treat them. Okay. Okay, that's fair. So what, you know, I could, my husband comes from a very large family, and the siblings, obviously, if something had happened to one of his parents would be there. What is, what if the they don't have a pulse and how at that point how do you determine who makes that decision for them there is a sort of a societally decided ethical and legal hierarchy of who makes decisions for individuals it kind of it's a little bit beyond this conversation for exactly how it's broken down but it's it's really the 
the closest relative to that person. So if a if a patient has a, a spouse, they usually are the first go-to person. If no spouse, then parents, children, brothers, sisters, family members. If no family members, it moves out to their kind of social circle. And, and really, it's, it's, you know, while there are specific, specifically legally appointed people who are next in line, we also take everybody's opinion into account. And if there's one family member who wants one thing and others who want something else, we sit down and try to figure it out with everybody. Okay. That can be tough too. So that all the more important reason to have that that care plan in place, or at least what your wishes are in case something does happen. So, um, you know, one of the things that that I think also is important is kind of what is an individual's goals when it comes to their health. So somebody, you know, say somebody is diagnosed with with um, a chronic disease or something illness that could be. Um, in later life that could actually be tough for them to live past you know are there do you does that same conversation come up with the the primary care doctor what are your care goals what are your goals for your health what do you what do you expect to happen if you're diagnosed with cancer are those things that you should be discussing with with your doctor and your family as well yeah absolutely and and that's kind of it's an important question to bring up because it's it's one of the difficult aspects of medicine in modern medicine we're pushed to see more patients in shorter periods of time and and that's specifically one reason why I decided to come on this podcast. Being an ICU doctor, obviously I'm about as far from a primary care doctor as I can be, but it's an extremely common thing that patients show up with severely advanced chronic diseases, such as very advanced cancers, and this is a very expected sort of path for them to go down of, of developing severe infections and severe complications of the cancer. And they've never had this conversation with any of their, their family or their caregivers. And, and I definitely understand because the, the, the makeup of, of medicine, it, it, it makes it very difficult because we don't have much time to talk about these mm-hmm. things. And the best time to talk about it is when there's not a severe and critical illness happening when you have the ability to have minimal symptoms and sit down with somebody and take the time to talk about it and that's why i think it's important to make an appointment specifically to talk about it so even if you know you only have a 15 minute slot with your doctor which is a very common amount of time that should be the only thing that you talk about and not other things that that just make it a little bit more complicated. Okay. Do you find that doctors are um, being proactive and asking these questions or or having the patient come back to discuss these these types of issues or this this type of um, treatment plan? Yeah, more and more. I mean, this is definitely a growing field of medicine of talking about these talking about these things. In the past, sort of traditional medicine was just do everything and focus on keeping people alive. Uh, more and more recognizing the importance of both palliative care and and symptom management and also the importance of goals and really addressing does this treatment fit the goals the patient has for their illness. And a lot of the time, not a lot of times, some of the time, that's not the case. And, and a great example is chemotherapy. We all know chemotherapy can have a lot of side effects, a lot of adverse effects. And and sometimes the, the patients just prefer to be comfortable and to be happy and to spend time with their, their family, but they might not have had an opportunity to really talk to their families and their physicians and everybody involved about if that chemotherapy really fits their goals. Yeah. I, I was, um, had cancer about four years ago, almost five years ago, and the I didn't even want to have that conversation. I just, I think, you know, 
in your head, you're just like, I got this. Just let's move on. I got it. It's not going to be, um, it's not going to be traumatizing to anybody. And I think that was probably, you know, now that I think about it, probably was a bad, um, way of thinking or it was a bad reaction on my part where if I should have probably just sat down with my husband or with my family and just said, you know, if this, if this progresses or gets worse, this is how I would like my, um, my treatment to go or how I'd like my end of life to be. So, you know, so there's not really an age at any point because like I said, I'm not old, <laughs> but, yeah. but those are, those are things that have happened to me in my life. And I think everybody can relate to that if it's, if it's happened to them or if it's, if it's happened to somebody that they know. Um, so, you, you know, as children of older parents, you really should be on top of them asking those questions, asking them if they've had that conversation with their spouse, with their doctor, who's in charge if somebody needs to make health decisions. Um, you know, is it the oldest? Sometimes it's not. Sometimes the oldest doesn't live in town and, and they're not able to get here in a timely manner. So, you know, really define what you think your care should be like if you're not able to, to have that conversation directly. Yeah, absolutely. And, there was an interesting article in the New York Times in 2011 titled How Doctors Die. And it was a, a physician who noticed that doctors die in very different ways than, than the general population. They are in the hospital a whole lot less. They utilize the ICU a whole lot less. They get substantially less chemotherapy, substantially less antibiotics. Uh, and, and really, the question that was brought up then and is still really being addressed is, is what's really the difference? And, and why do doctors utilize medicine so much less when we're really the, the, the gatekeepers of medicine? It's, it's our whole life. It's our drive. It's our passion. Why do we not accept these treatments? And really, the difference is, I think we have an understanding of its limitations. And yeah. families and patients often come into the hospital and say, do everything, where what I, what I believe is they're really saying is do everything that's reasonable. And when we're out of reasonable options, tell me and let's talk about it more. Unfortunately, the ICU is, is the wrong place for that conversation because things happen really fast and, and things get worse or better really fast. And it, it's really hard to keep up, especially when that patient isn't able to speak for themselves. Yeah. And, and that's, that's true. I mean, by the time you're seeing most of your patients, they're, they're very ill. They're, they're sicker than, than most. Is there, um, is there any types of resources that either an individual that's getting ready to, to talk about advanced player counting or, uh, or a, a child can go to, to read about, um, to just figure out, you know, what's the best way to approach this? I mean, you obviously don't want to do it at the dinner table on Thanksgiving day. So what's your <laughs> advanced care um, plan? Um, you know, are there uh, resources that you can go out there and, and read up a little bit or just kind of review prior? Yeah, there's a whole bunch, actually. So the, the there's a number that are all I found to be quite helpful and quite um, approachable, easy to approach. So the AARP, the American Association for Retired People, has a really great section of their website specifically about this topic. Uh, and that, that has a lot of things such as uh, conversation starters and, and um, ways to address it. There's a number of um, websites that are projects specifically for this. Um, there's, you, know, you can just Google or you know, search any of these things. There's Death by Design. There's the Conversation Project. And then there's the Prepare website. All of these are dedicated specifically to this topic. And then you know, for the right person, there's also a, there's a card game uh, called the Go Wish game, kind of like Go Fish but Go Wish, uh, that, that really aids in talking about these difficult topics and kind of uh, 
let you dive into specifically these topics. And everyone likes a good card game, so that would be interesting <laughs> to see. So is there any, you know, we talked about the, the health piece of it too, but the other question, and I probably, I'm not even sure if you could answer this, is there is there a legal portion of it? You know, because once again, you have this advanced care plan or you have this pulse that you've signed, but once again, if you're not able to talk, then you have that that spouse that is, no, I want you to do everything versus the, the you know, the oldest child saying, no, this is, you got to follow his wishes. I know at what point does it get choppier, gets hard? Uh, commonly. Um, and, and, you know, I can think of some very complicated uh, scenarios where, you know, particularly in younger people where one parent wants one thing and said, you know, the patient would want it this way and the other parent believes the exact opposite and it gets very complicated very quickly. Uh, there are many legal ramifications and um, even with things like living wills where you can, with a lawyer, document out very specific things of what you would or would not want. Um, any appointed decision makers or any legal decision makers can always change those things too. So that that merely highlights the importance of having very broad conversations with your families, uh, having everyone get a very clear understanding of your wishes. And it's going to happen where there's going to be disagreement within within family members. Um, you know, a, a very clear example, my parents made me their durable power of attorney, which is kind of the legal way of saying this is the appointed decision maker. Uh, and I have a brother and sister who are not in medicine, and, and we've already talked about how complicated it's going to be when my parents do get ill and when I do start making decisions on their behalf, because much like that, that article, How Doctors Die, I'm convinced my goals are going to be very different than my brother and sister, and, and it will get complicated no matter what, which mm -hmm. just brings in the importance of uh, talking with family members and really understanding where they're coming from. Because the, the point I always like to make when having family meetings in the ICU, we're not making decisions for this person. We are imagining they're in the room with us, having the conversation with us, and we're making the decisions that we believe they would be making for themselves. Tough decision sometimes. Um, is there anything else that you can recommend for um, someone on what you know what they should be talking to their doctor about? You know, besides the the goals for your care and the advanced planning, is there anything else that, that they should be obviously not only talking to their doctor but talking to their family that you can think of that? I would, I would say coming up with a concrete plan is very important. There's a great podcast by a, a woman named Judy McDonald Johnston. It was, a, it was a TED Talk, and you could really search for it, any, any podcast you know, searching site. Uh, it's called Prepare for a Good End of Life. And she talks a lot about making a plan. And specifically to say, I would like to die at home is not a plan. Um, we know the vast majority of Americans would prefer to die at home. About 80% of them actually die in the hospital. Um, and to just say, I would like to die at home, is not a plan. What you need is a specific plan of, if I develop these symptoms, if I develop um, particular illnesses, then I would like to be able to increase the level of care I get at home, whether it's through home health services, caregivers, family members who are available. But there has to be a specific plan in place. And if there's not, an ambulance will be called. You'll be shipped off to the hospital. 
and uh, things will kind of things may go in a direction that you never meant them to. Yeah, and that, and that's tough too because I know once you know patients get to a, a certain stage and they know what their wishes are and they know that you've shared those wishes with the family members. Sometimes it just emotions get caught up with with family members and and um, and sometimes that, that gets overlooked. But you know you're right. Just I, I wish I could die at home is probably not good enough instruction and it's hard to follow but you know and I think too that that hospice in well at least in the Central Valley because I know it a little bit better is so underutilized and that's unfortunate too because then that just gives you another another option to to help with any of the the symptoms and the pain that you're having and be more in a comfortable setting other than a hospital setting with your family and friends. Right and that that brings up an important point of People often regard hospice as giving up, pulling the plug, right. not trying, and and their goal often in a sort of uh, you know the expected stages of grief is I want to live as long as possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what a lot of the data consistently shows among many different disease states is people who are on hospice often live longer and live more comfortably. Are spend much more time at home, spend much more time symptom free than the patients who pursue very aggressive treatments. And there's a lot of different uh, ways to do hospice. You can do hospice with some treatments. You can do hospice with some chemotherapies. You can can do hospice uh, without just throwing up your hands and saying, "Okay, only give me you know heavy narcotics and uh, you know." make me unaware because I give up. That is not the the really goal, aim, or, you know, direction of hospice. Right. I, I get very excited when I hear somebody's been on hospice for, you know, six, eight weeks because I know that they are managing their pain, but they're still able to, to be in a setting where they're comfortable. Um, you know, I know the average, and this was years ago, but the average hospice, I think, is three or four days in Fresno, and that's so unfortunate for for a lot of people, but is there anything else that you you can share you'd like to share when it comes to these advanced care plannings that I'm not asking or I'm not aware of? I would just you know just stress the importance of it all. Um, you know, working in the ICU, we see really the most severe manifestations of a lot of diseases, and it's important to remember that really everything we do in medicine has risks and benefits um, from chemotherapies, antibiotics, procedures, and even just being in the hospital. Some important statistics of being in the ICU is there's this growing condition we call post-ICU syndrome, where people who are just admitted to the ICU, regardless of their admission diagnosis, can be something very benign, such as a urinary tract infection or something very severe, have pretty severe manifestations afterwards. There's about a 10% increase in severe cognitive impairment, uh, there's about there's a huge increase in functional limitations after patients have stayed in the ICU. A pretty huge increase in mental illness. About 30 to 40 percent will develop lifelong anxiety. 28 to 34 percent lifelong depression. 36 to 42 percent will develop severe PTSD just from being in the hospital. Now the ICU is a great place for people who who will really benefit from it. But I, in my experience, there's a large number of people who. Uh, had they been able to talk about their goals, to talk about their care plan with their family, with their physicians, and really been able to map out when this disease gets worse, because it will, you know, when I'm approaching the end of my life, 
how aggressive do I want to be? And, and many, many people I've found really do not want to be as aggressive as we often bestow upon them. But when they get that bestowed upon them, it's already too late because they never had these conversations and they're already not able to speak for themselves. So really the important thing and my whole purpose of coming here is just to stress the importance of bringing up these difficult topics and really talking to people around you so everybody knows what your goals really are. So out of the the patients that you see in uh, your primarily at downtown community regional, I'm assuming? That's correct. Um, what percentage of them do have advanced care directors or advanced care planning in place, and how many of those do not? Tough to say. I don't know the exact numbers off off the top of my head, but um, I would say, you know, ten to twenty percent show up with a pulsed um, that physician's order for life sustaining treatment. Uh, but of those people, many of them already have pretty severe debilitating illness. These are the, the types of people who, you know, spend their lives in nursing homes um, while these, these illnesses slowly decline. That's because a lot of these nursing homes require, require, require yeah. a, mm-hmm. a, a pulsed form. I would say it's a, it's a very small percentage um, that actually have a plan set in place. Um, and a lot of the times... You know, these, these plans are very dynamic and they have to change. And, and the, probably the most unfortunate thing is when there is a loosely set plan in place and then something really bad happens, something gets worse with that illness. And, and you know, everybody kind of freaks out a little bit, expands out the plan, uh, makes goals much more aggressive, only to subject that person to a lot of aggressive treatments and then dial the, the, the care back later on after these aggressive things have already happened. You know, and that brings up a good question. So if you do have a pulse form, you can always make changes to it. Like if you do have, absolutely, you know, absolutely. I want everything done, very aggressive treatment, but then <clears throat> you get to a different stage in your life or a different stage in your illness that you could always go back and change that. Absolutely. And, and, and you can change it in either direction to be more aggressive, less aggressive. Um, you know, people will often say, people will often not want to talk about these things with me and they'll say, oh, I have, a, I have an advanced directive on file. But to me, anything you say overrides any of your advanced directives. Okay. So if you are able to speak in your advanced directive, the same one, but you're like, oh, no, no, no. Kind of going back to when I had cancer, I'm like, I got this. I know it. I got it. Um, you know, that brings up another question. So at, when somebody is going into the hospital for some type of um, procedure or treatment, depending on the severity, is the hospital having that conversation with the individual? Ideally, yeah. Okay. And one, one question that, you know, anytime you get admitted to the hospital, anytime you come through the emergency room, whether you stubbed your toe and broke your toe or you have, you know, a rip-roaring crazy pneumonia and you are right on death's door, uh, we'll always ask about code status. So, a, you know, if you want to be full code, meaning chest compressions, shocking you to restart your heart, breathing tubes down your throat, or if you want none of those things or somewhere in between. And ideally, there should be some sort of conversation of, of what are your goals? What are you looking to get out of this hospitalization? Are you looking to, you know, walk out of the hospital in the same way you came in? Are you looking to get better enough just to get home? Or are you looking to just feel okay and try to get tuned up to be able to, to sort of meet the next stages of your, of your critical illness? Those things are, are supposed to be talked about. Hopefully, they, do, they are talked about. But one thing that is definitely always talked about is the code status. Okay. And I, and I remember being in, in um, home care, and one of the questions is, is, you know, what is your goal? And probably 95% of the people was, is I want to go home. 
and I want to go home better than what I'm feeling today, or I want to go home as I walked in here today, or I want to go home, you know, to die. It's, it's just, it's a, a, the last part of that is always different, but the first part of it is, is I always want to go home. And, and that's true. I mean, everybody feels more comfortable in their home and, you know, I get it. I totally understand, but. Yeah. And that's, that's one way I, I, often break it down because sometimes goals aren't necessarily realistic. Sometimes, you know, we don't do a good job of explaining how severe a critical illness might be. So the way I I break it down is quantity and quality. And and for, you know, many of us, we, they're about the same thing. If, if, you know, if we're, you know, healthy, we get pneumonia, we go into the hospital, we get antibiotics, we feel better, we go home, we live longer. Quantity and quality, they're the same thing. But with very sick people, sometimes they, we can't have both. It's a fork in the road. And we can oftentimes make people live longer. Usually that's pretty easy, but it comes at pretty severe consequences of having lots of tubes in you and having lots of drains in you and getting lots of surgeries and very painful, invasive, complicated the things. The quality. Yeah. yeah. So that's, that's the quantity side of making you live longer. Usually we can do that. Not always. But then the quality side, sometimes you have to decide, I want to live longer or I want to live better. Mm-hmm. Now, some people call that withdrawing care. I think it's a terrible term because we don't do anything less. When people focus on comfort measures only or, or quality of life, you probably will see the nurse and the doctor in the room more than when you were very aggressive, uh, you know, quantity of life too. We, we are just as aggressive in treating people when they focus on comfort we just have a very different focus of our aggression. Right, right. Okay. It's a tough topic for sure. I mean, I know that we've had very, um, we haven't had a lot of conversation with, with our parents and um, at any level, my husband or myself with my parents. So it's a tough topic. But in the long run, it would be better for not only the the individual, the patient, the family member, the parent, but also for the family. So they all have an understanding and, and you're all <coughs> focusing on, on one thing and that would be the individual and what their wishes are. Right. That's, that's exactly it. And, and you know, that, that's, that really brings in the important part, you know, something that I often tell patients and families who, who are dying in the ICU, I deal with death every day, unfortunately, is that, you know, death and the dying process is going to be bad. It's going to be bad no matter what. But there are a lot of circumstances where really good things come out of it too. When families come together and, and they're there with patients and really the more so than people just being afraid to die is being, is dying alone and Mm -hmm. dying in pain. Right. And those are things that when, when death is really addressed head on and and not avoided and talked about in a very open, honest and difficult way, really, really, really good things can come out of it too, amidst the absolutely terrible things as well. And you said you completely true. Everybody is, is going to die at some point. So hopefully that having these plans in place will make them a little bit more comfortable, a little bit more easier for the family. Absolutely. Well, thank you. I appreciate you coming today and, and talking to us. Um, so once again, uh, Dr. McCann, pulmonary and critical care at UCSF Fresno. He's a second year fellow, meaning he's got about one more year and maybe you'll we'll hear his name afterwards sticking around. <laughs> thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you so much.